Welcome to the Safety Talks podcast presented by Safopedia.com, empowering the workplace with free health and safety information. I'm your host, Pat Robinson. Safety Talks seeks to educate and inform through our discussions with experts and influencers in all aspects of occupational health and safety. We cover current practices and new developments in emerging technologies, management systems, legislation, and safety best practices. Now, to today's guest. My guest today is Michael Sajani. Michael is a certified safety professional, chartered property casualty underwriter, active risk manager, and is currently the chief operating officer of MKS Safety, a loss control consulting firm. He is the author of a book, How to Cultivate World-Class Safety Culture, Actively Engaging Employees Using the Five Pillars of Safety. He has authored several articles published in the Professional Safety Journal. As Corporate Safety Director at Fort Dearborn Company, he has delivered several presentations at the ASSP Professional Development Conference and Chicagoland Safety Conference on defining and developing world-class safety culture. Michael has extensive experience in the insurance industry. He was previously an ASSP Chapter President and Regional Safety Professional of the Year Award winner. Michael also holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering, is a certified safety professional, and is a professional member of the ASSP. Michael Sajani, welcome to the Safety Talks podcast. Thank you, Patrick. Today we're talking about Achieving world-class safety by actively engaging employees uh, using the five pillars of safety. And we're going to talk a bunch today about uh, Mike's book. There'll be more uh, about that later in the podcast, and we'll, we'll talk about some of the details of that. Um, and we're going to talk about the five pillars themselves and um, some of the highlights of uh, Michael's learnings over his uh, 50 years in in the uh, health and safety business. So let's get started. Um, There's lots of conversation, just about everywhere you go, you'll hear this phrase, world-class, world-class safety. So there's a couple of things in your book that I think are are really valuable because um, I haven't seen a couple of these phrases, one of them, one in particular, um, in my readings um, throughout my um, time in the safety business. So let's talk about world-class safety and if you could highlight some information around specifically this issue of customer intimacy. Um, And uh, let's just walk through some of this because I think this is a a really good grounding on the rest of the conversation. When I think about world-class safety, I kind of think about it as being a shared belief among people in an organization. It's the attitude, passion of a group of people. It's kind of a way of life. You know. At at Four D One Company where we encourage world class safety culture, we always talked about sending our people back to their homes safe and sound every day. That was our mission. That was our vision vision. Our secondary mission was to make sure that the company made money. And I always told them, safety is good business. You take care of your people, you're going to make money. And that was the two things that we always did is think about sending our people back to work safely and making sure that safety process, safety things we do makes money for our company as well. 
So, you know, we had a mission and a vision, and that kind of was our mission. I also told the company, and we always believed in, that there has to be an organized process, okay, in order to achieve world-class safety, okay? In any organization, whether it is a manufacturing, service, construction, you need to have an organized process, and you need to have a vision and a mission. An over-organized process that I recommended and we implemented was the five pillars of safety. I will talk about these five pillars separately as you go. But before you can achieve any level of organizing success, I feel that you need to do what we call a gap analysis, you know. You need to know where you are, even in your own personal life, if you want to achieve something meaningful, you need to know where you are. You also need to identify where you want to be. And you need to put together a roadmap, a process, how you're going to get there. And that's exactly what we did at the company. We did the gap analysis. We found that our company was in bad shape. OSHA was after our back. OSHA said, you straighten up or we'll straighten you up. In fact, three or four plants got warnings from OSHA. Okay. Our injury rate was far above the OSHA average. Our NCCI mod was 1.54. We were paying almost double what an average company would be paying for workers' comp cost. Our CEOs at the time was not at all engaged and nor were our managers. Yep. So the first thing we did was, okay, that was our current state. I said, okay, this is where we are. Then I said, where do you want to go? And wrote down the desired state. Where do you want to go? We wanted full engagement for senior executives. And we wanted zero serious safety violations and fully engaged association. So that was our roadmap. And we said, this is a roadmap we're going to try to follow. What I did was on my table, I had this kind of a sculpture with five pillars and world-class safety on top. And I saw that every day. To me, that was my motivation. That was my mission. And I also had a roadmap with my five pillars showing what specific things I was going to go do with what specific activities within these pillars was I going to do to achieve my desired state. You know, that's how we really achieved, I believe, a process, a vision, and try to get management commitment. So, Mike, let me just ask a little bit about um, sort of what led you led you down the path. And, and I know we talk in our next segment about uh, management engagements, and I have a couple of questions there. But um, when you did the gap analysis and you, you laid out in a, a fairly systematic uh, manner um, where, the, where the problems were and identified those for management, which of those things do you think um, were the biggest motivators? Um, one of them that you mentioned in terms of workers' compensation is an obvious financial motivator. Um, uh, not having visits from OSHA, the regulator, um, is also a motivator. So uh, what, what do you think really just um, 
got management to acknowledge that there were significant issues and uh, things that had to be had to be addressed. The financial motivation was the critical. The OSHA potential fines and potential criminal violations was also motivation. Right. But the fact that we were thinking about sending employees back to their families was important for them and motivated as well. They, they saw their moral obligation as well to send people back to their families. They saw that, but they didn't really put those together. They really wanted the people to go back to home safe, but they didn't put together how safety process will help us do that. Once you put an organized approach to making that happen, they kind of came on board. So aside from financial, they all, I find every senior executive always feels good about their people working for them. They always respect them and they always want to send them back home safely. But this process kind of real, made them realize, yes, we can do that, you know. Yeah. So yeah. that's what really was a motivator for them as well in the gap analysis that we wanted to send every employee back to their home safely. Right. What about the concept of rewarding re associates who drive results? We didn't really get into, I don't think that rewarding associates, but rewarding associates not monetarily really makes a difference. I think rewarding associates and appreciating, like one of the things we identify in the gap analysis, the employees were not appreciated for the work they were doing for the company. So one way we try to reward associates is by catching associates doing right. Mm -hmm. Okay, one of the ways. So we took yeah. pictures of those associates that were doing right things, and we put those pictures on the board. Now the associates were so appreciative that they were being appreciated for doing the right thing. Okay. Right. So it is it is it is more like patting the back kind of a thing that really appreciates them rather than rewarding monetarily on what they do. Although they need money as well, don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying that the real motivator was them being appreciated for the work they were doing for the company. You know. Sure. So that, I believe, made an impact on the employee getting engaged and involved in the company's efforts to have a safe place and a, a, a profitable business. Yeah, for, for certain. Um, when you're talking uh, strong cultures, and, and we'll talk about these themes later on, um, it's more than just uh, black and white X's and O's and, and balance sheets. That's, uh, that's for certain. And when you talk about some of the metrics that define world-class. Um, generally, th these kinds of conversations start with things like, well, you know, what's your OSHA rates or, you know, wh what's your workers' compensation rates versus your rating group, um, these kinds of things. But there are other things that world-class organizations do that I think um, most of the ones that, that I've been uh, exposed to do some things that uh, non-world-class organizations don't. And, and one of the, the first things that I would look for in terms of sort of a corporate behavior that is world-class is um, things like dedicated budgeting for uh, management training in occupational health and safety. And, uh, you know, we're going to get into really what, what you had, you'd used the phrase full management engagement, and we're going to get into that in, in our next segment. But um, there's a difference between writing checks for safety 
and as managers or as uh, executives. And uh, that, that's one thing. Um, but it's another thing to be uh, actively engaged in the, uh, the promotion and sometimes, frankly, just the execution of safety from the, uh, the C-suite, from the executive level. So um, the world class can mean a lot of different things to different people. And it's certainly um, much, much more than just your rear end measurements, your uh, end of process uh, measurements like OSHA rates and DART and, and uh, various financial metrics. We were, you know, I always told them world-class safety is, is like beauty, you know. And, you know, it's difficult to describe. Mm-hmm. But once you're there, you can see it. For example, we had a situation where the, in the ink mixing, our ventilation system went down. And the question of the general manager was, what do I do? You know, and I said, you know, if you run the operation, you're going to have employees breathing the vapor. And that's not good for health. It's not good for employee morale and you don't get employee engaged if you let them breathe with he decided to shut the plant down till the ventilation system was improved was was brought back in the ink room and then they started making the ink so you cannot run a plant without the ink so that in this case you could see that his thought process was very clear he wanted to make sure the employees were safe he wanted to make sure the process was safe he was willing to let go of some profit to make sure people were safe. Then these people later on came back and worked really hard for him to make money. So that's a world-class safety. It's not something that's easy to describe, but you can see it when it happens, you know. That's a great example of, of management leadership and, and certainly putting safety objectives before uh, financial in, in this particular case and, and a great case. And that's actually a, a good step off point into segment two. So let's talk about management leadership and commitment. Um, there's any number of things in this area, but uh, what do you think are the most important elements here? And drawing from your experience, um, what would you say in this area? Like I said, management, you, you, you need senior executives actively engaged. If they're not involved, if they're not engaged, as a, as a safety professional, we are not going to be able to achieve much, okay? So the question that arises, and it arose to me when I got this responsibility, is how am I going to get my senior executives engaged? And one thing I realized that every senior executives, they live by profit and loss statement. They live by making sure the company makes money or else they have no job and there is no company. So I realized that. And I said, how am I going to make them realize that safety makes good business sense? So a couple of things that I did was very simple. You know, when I did my my audits, I would call it Mark OSHA inspection, okay? In the Mark OSHA inspection, I would calculate fines for every violation. And my report to management would show that if they did not comply with these corrections, they'll be fined $520,000 if it was an OSHA inspection. So I put violation on the financial terms. I saw them what they could lose if they don't comply with these violations. And you know what? They kind of saw that. And then they made sure that every one of the unsafe conditions identified was corrected because they saw that as a financial term. The other thing I did was show them what the mod rate was for the company's workers' comp. Our mod rate was 1.54. And I said, you're paying as a company 
more than 50% than the average company in your industry is paying. And I said, we would like to make sure we reduce our mild rate to less than one. In fact, our mild rate went down to 0.6. That means we were paying less than half the average. This saved a couple of million dollars. We're a large company, a couple of million dollars just in workers' comp case cost. And I kept showing them, saying, look, you're making money. Safety is making money for you, you know. And they really went on board. So each time I said I need to get this done, they would come and say, go ahead. But I also made sure that I, I showed them that the safety makes sense. I kind of went along the management side of it. We wanted to buy a new vacuum system for a printing operation so that you can move the waste automatically by vacuum to the baler. And there was going to be a cost. I think the cost was about $250,000. And that's a lot of money. So what I did was I put together return on investment for the management. Right. I said, you buy this, this is what you're going to save. And, the, and later on, I showed that this is better than your hurdle rate. And hurdle rate is a rate where if your returns are higher than the rate, generally you buy into that recommendation. And they, they were able to say that this is not only a good safety process, but it's a good management uh, returns as well. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing was that I align with their business thinking. So I think as safety professionals, when we make our safety recommendations, we need to find a way to align with the business thinking. And then you'll find, you'll get, you'll get really support engagement from senior executives. You know. Yeah, those are uh, great examples. One more thing that, that, that we did was, analyzing losses, okay, using insurance company runs by location and by type. And one plant had a lot more injuries, okay? So we spent our time and effort at that plant and controlled the incident rates and lost time rates, showing to management that we spent the time and effort, the resources, you know, resources more effectively. Same thing we did by when we found our most of our injuries were ergonomics. So then we put our time and effort and resources in controlling ergonomic injuries in buying vacuum lift and in training people, etc. And we saw the results. But in the process, we showed the management that as safety professionals, we are putting our money and effort in a more uh, efficient manner. Like one of the core value uh, was uh, a performance-driven culture, okay? So this shows this we are performance-driven in, in managing safety, you know. Right. We align with the company's performance-driven culture in the process. To uh, just dive into that a little bit, um, were ergonomic-related uh, stressors and repetitive strain uh, disorders and those kinds of things a significant percentage of um, your workers' compensation costs so which areas, if, if it's a pretty dramatic turnaround from well over one to well below one, pretty yes. dramatic turnaround over a relatively short period of time, um, what kind of things were you able to scrub out well, or at least scrub lower? The, the most important thing, like you said, was, was ergon- once we analyzed ergonomics and machine related, okay? So we were able to work on ergonomics and reduce our ergonomic losses, what I think one point four million 
went down to five hundred, less than five hundred thousand. Yeah, so that's a million bucks. That's a million bucks savings right there. Okay, yeah. and we were able to do that, like I said, through training and having an ergonomic uh, program in place, which included training, measurements, and and making sure that we that adequate equipment. For example, they were manually lifting uh, drums before while they were taking to the presses. And we gave them special ergonomic lifting, drum lifters, okay, to minimize the strains and stresses, you know, and really worked. But what really worked was that we analyzed first, identify ergonomic as a problem, and then managed it through our process, you know, and really worked well. Yep. But you have to analyze it find a gap and then, then, then do, go through the process to make it happen. So through this uh, sort of growth phase and the, and the management team is, um, uh, let, let's say, acquiring new skills or at least new perspectives, you've talked about some of the financial incentives and the things that uh, they could get their heads around as, um, uh, as impacting the, the bottom line with better safety. Was there um, other things that came along that would be more related to sort of the social side as opposed to just the financial side of safety? So um, I've long viewed that, at least from a construction, most of my background is uh, is industrial construction. And um, I had come to, to see the just the amazing value in, and it's a, a super high impact CEO or C-suite kind of activity where you bring the CEO out or VP um, caliber people and have them doing uh, a safety focused walk about in the workplace that includes interaction with the, with the employees, obviously in the frontline supervisors and that, and, and, Again, to say a, a safety-focused walk, not not a productivity-focused walk, um, not a cost containment-focused walk, but a safety-focused walk. It, it's hard to um, imagine a better sort of um, investment of VP's time uh, in promotion of um, safety objectives than that when they, they honestly come out and interact and speak to workers and, and frontline supervisors um, about nothing but um, either health or safety or both. Um, it's just a, a hugely high impact activity. So was there some of that stuff uh, that took place as well? We had a couple of situations. Uh, and yes, you need to talk to first line people to get them engaged. And the only way to get them engaged is by talking to them. We had a situation where I invited my all my safety champions from each plant to our corporate every year to talk about safety. And I had then asked my CEO if he wanted to come and talk about safety to the safety champions. And he said he was busy. And I said, fine. And I put together an agenda where I got all these people and we had an outside, we had invited outside speaker. Eight o'clock, my CEO walks in, okay? He walks in and he talks to these people. He kind of chit chats to them for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. At 25 minutes, I could take it no more. So I got up and I told him, Mike, we have a lot of things to do. Red-faced, he just walked out. <laughs> and I just continued with my, my business. You know, I said, hey, we had a lot of things to do. At 5 o'clock, he comes in to check. We were still working on safety projects, you know, at the time. My direct reporter, who was the vice president of operation, called me in. And I told him that, hey, 
I don't run safety meetings as chit-chat meetings. I run safety meetings as business meetings, okay? This was a business meeting, okay? And, you know, I had invited him. He, he did not come. What am I going to do? Honestly, every year after that, he came to the meeting prepared. He would make safety presentations at this champions meeting. Not only that, he took safety at the board of directors meeting and would talk about what we did in safety at the board of directors, which has so many other companies reporting to the chairman of the board of directors. He took safety at that level, but he was a safety champion for at the board of directors. Right. And I got the highest raise, more than my salary that year from him. Now, sometimes you have to take a risk. You've got to be on the right side. You take a risk and really work well for me now. But, you know, the fact is we have to run safety meetings as, as business meetings, not just chit-chat meetings or finding fault or bullshitting meetings. It, yeah. These are business meetings, and that's what we need to do as safety professionals. The other thing he learned before this particular meeting was he walked into a plant, uh, and I, it was South Carolina. Uh, so one employee stopped him. An employee goes, do you have your safety shoes? Oh, I think it was after this. Do you have your safety shoes? Or somewhere around the same time. And he goes, no. And the, client, the employee goes to him, but then you cannot walk in the manufacturing facility. Again, he was stunned, but in this case, he walked back, put his safety shoes out, and came in the plant. But he was very appreciative later on that safety was not only being talked in the corporate world, but safety was actually being discussed at the employee level, where the employees were able to stop the CEO walking in the plant without the proper safety gear. That is outstanding world-class safety culture. That's how I see it. Something very difficult to describe, but you see it when it happens, you know. A couple of great examples there, Mike, is, um, well, uh, two, two observations here. One is management quite clearly uh, started to gain um, a new safety-focused perspective and then um, started to develop different skills and probably a different language in how they interacted with workers if, you know, that first meeting was a little bit rocky and he subsequently came back with, you know, sort of a different perspective and, and was able to talk about these issues um, with more directness and, and as business meetings, as you suggest. So that's, that's one sort of indicator that um, culturally, the, at least the management group is moving in the right direction. So when they come back and they can then uh, speak the language uh, um, of safety in, um, in a way that's uh, maybe more constructive. The other thing that you mentioned about, you know, the worker having, and, and I guess the term that would be used these days is empowerment, yes. um, where the worker would feel empowered enough um, and secure enough as an employment and, um, uh, have enough sort of inherent belief that the culture around him would support challenging an executive regarding things like personal protective equipment. I mean, as you suggest, these are um, real, they're, they're somewhat intangible, but real strong indicators that uh, the culture is improving and you're moving in the right direction. Now, in, that, in that particular plan, the general manager was outstanding in his own safety belief. So the employee knew that he would get support from his general manager. And that's what really happened there. No. Yeah, fantastic. Those are great examples. 
Okay, so let's move into um, section three. Let's talk about pillar three, safety system integration with the business functions. And this is such an important thing. Um, for far too long, safety um, initiatives are seen something separate from um, every other aspect of the work, which I never really figured out. Um, it is a piece of a much uh, broader overall set of things that need to be done. Um, but integration really is um, one of the key elements of world-class. So when you talk world-class, if your organization is still treating safety as something as an add-on, then you're probably not world-class. Um, there really needs to be full integration of safety activities. And, and as you've alluded to a few times already in our discussion, things like budgeting, um, deliverables, managing safety as a business uh, with business-type deliverables, all really important things. So let's chat about integration. I always felt that the, the safety professional, safety director, depending on where you are, should report directly to the CEOs or whoever is in charge. For example, if the safety professional is working at plant level, he or she should report to the general manager. Okay, It's not on one side. But at the same time, we need to realize as safety professional, the reporting relationship is is something that you acquire, something that you are able to manage. And we need to work on making sure that we, we come through in those areas. I'll give you an example, okay, where we had a situation where um, the company was going to buy a plant, a, a small printing company in the uh, Georgia area, where, in the actually coastal area, Brunswick actually, where there were a lot of hurricanes, not hurricanes, a lot of hurricanes and storms. They were going to buy it, and, and, and I got involved, and I realized when I looked at the plant itself that the building was not designed to withstand high wind velocity. I brought that to the attention of the management. They didn't know that. Once they realized that, hey, that it's a hurricane area, okay, where the plant could completely be demolished, you know, a lot of insurance companies don't really pay everything, okay, and it depends upon how the insurance is, is really is managed. So I recommended they make sure that beef, they buy it after the, the, the uh, structure is beefed up to the current level of design factors, which I think about 130 miles per hour. It was designed for less than 100. And that's what they did. They required that in their uh, uh, purchase agreement, and the plant was then beefed up to the higher level of uh, uh, requirements, okay? Now, yeah. now they realized that as a safety professional, I made an impact on their safe business operation. And therefore, they wanted me to continue to be, be in their loop, in the senior executive loop, you know? So you need to earn that, uh, their respect. You need to earn that position being directly reported to the CEO. So that's well, likely an area where your insurance background kicked in. Well, it was not only insurance background, but also the, the all of us have engineering background as well. We need to understand the design factors of the building as well. So both the engineering and insurance, but that is correct. Right. The other situation, which again helped me come closer to the senior executives were when they bought, a, when actually they were going to buy, a, and they did buy, a large printing press, uh, about $5 million to $6 million printing press. And they were going to move that from this buyer 
buyer's plant with secondhand printing press to our new facility in a different location in three months. So when they were going to buy, it was about three, three or four days before that they came to, they didn't want everybody to know right away, but things got leaked out and then the things doesn't work out well for the buying and selling. So when I came to know, I said, hey, what if something happens on the press while it is in their care and custody? They had not taken that into consideration. They thought everything would be fine. I said, no, you need to make sure that you have certificate of insurance naming us as additional insured. So something happens there, the seller is gonna be responsible for that loss. You know what? In about three weeks or four weeks after they bought the press, closed the deal, there was a serious incident on the press. If we did not have that agreement, additional insured sign, we would be picking up that loss. In this case, we did not have to pick up a penny. Now, this process, I helped the management. A lot of those senior executives, Bart's actually, you know, otherwise they would have been really put in real difficult situation by the board of directors. You know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? So they saw me as an asset in their business operation. And that's how they made sure that I was in almost all of their senior executive meetings. But that happens when you need to make sure, you as a professional, we need to make sure that that we do think that they recognize, they appreciate, and they see that as a value to make you be a part of their, their inner circles. Um, and, and that's a nice step off point to the concept of, of budgeting. Um, all too frequently, uh, you will see organizations where, yes, there may well be budgets set aside for safety-related activities, but um, not typically, and very typically viewed as a, a sort of a side budget, and um, very frequently not under the control of the senior safety um, representative, um, whoever that person might be. Um, there, there's frequently a phenomenon where the safety function needs to go to another function uh, to spend money that's already been allocated within a budget, which... Um, I guess says something about the quality of the relationship and the culture of, of that organization, perhaps. So talk a little bit about uh, safety budgeting and that kind of integration. My budget was within the VP operations budget. Although he had set aside my safety budget, but what I would do is I would, I would always try to make value at a decision in the sense that, hey, why you need this? And I would always get the money. Once I made my case as to why you need this. For example, one of the things was training all the, all the plant managers, we, the, one of the requirements was every plant manager should be OSHA trained, meaning 10 of our OSHA card. That made all those people had to come to our corporate to be trained. And so they had to put aside some, some money to be able to do that. But I'll be honest with you, I did not have like set budget as such. I was given whatever thing I needed to accomplish my goals once I identify the goals for them. But I understand that there is a need for a budget, but I was given kind of, you know, whatever I needed, actually. Right. So with the OSHA 10 course, you put all your supervisors through that. That's a significant expenditure. Yes. Um, what was the outcome? I mean, it's, reali- it, it's dif- realizing it's difficult to perfectly quantify dollars in and, you know, the, the outcome in this kind of a case. But... Um, is there anything culturally um, or any sort of indicators that you thought uh, the payback for that investment was, was tangible? The most important thing was, one, we helped them improve their knowledge about safety and OSHA. 
So mm-hmm. once those managers working on the floor knew what the what their OSHA requirements were, when they, they were able to see more potential hazards in their operation and get it corrected. Okay. So it really helped a lot more from the standpoint of of safety and, and implementing OSHA standards. And then one of the a couple of they realized one of the OSHA standards was the training employees on lockout takeout on chemical safety. So then these people then took the time to train their employees, then realized the importance of OSHA standards and OSHA regulations. So they took the responsibility of training their own people in their own plan. So they, they were able to then change the culture from being proactive in, in both training and controlling issues that could potentially cause injuries. So it really helped change the culture. So Mike, what, do you, what would your sense be um pre-training and post. So what would say the, if you used a scale of one to 10, the average supervisor um, person on the floor, knowledge level regarding safety in general and kind of OSHA specific requirements in their area of responsibility. So pre and post, where, where'd you take them? Maybe from a three to a seven or, you know, could you ascribe that kind of a, a range of improvement? Let's put it this way. Initially, we were thinking about they always at a post training. There's an incident, you start training them, okay? But it changed. As the culture changes to being a world class, you almost think about pre training. You have to be able to foresee what could potentially happen and then train them. We would, like, we would have like what you call a huddle, okay? Safety huddle. So in the morning, we would have safety huddle where we'll talk about potential safety issues, and we'll train our people in those. If we had a contractor coming in, we would make sure we train our people responsible, manage these contractors, and making sure the contracts were training what they were doing as well. We, one of the requirements was every employee had to make sure their own area is safe. So we would train them how to observe their operation to make sure it is safe, you know. So it became more of the pre rather than post training became more critical in our organization as we as we progress to a, a better environment. So then we, we foresee something and we train our people. We had like 10 different training requirements for every employee. They had to go through certain 10 different requirements based on what they were doing, like our takeout, HASCOM, chemical safety, etc. But there were about 10 different things, and we would change this every year. But it was more pre than post, you know. But if there was something that happened, then, of course, there would be post-training as well. But it, okay. it, those situations were minimized once we started doing the pre-training of all our employees. Okay. So um, OSHA 10 covers off uh, essentially fundamental technical uh, training aspects to, to uh, field safety. Um, was there any additional sort of management training or supervisory training? Because um, technical knowledge and um, compliance enforcement to OSHA standards, um, that's certainly you know, important and, and obviously a, a key starting point. But supervising for safety is a little bit uh, is um, over and above. There's other sort of communication techniques and there's um, soft skills development and that kind of thing. So did you folks look at, uh, at that stuff as well? Well, my HR um, was quite involved in training both managers and employees in, in the software uh, skills. You know. like one of the things that we did was uh, workplace violence training, for mm-hmm. example. 
we would get people involved in uh, uh, res uh, what do you call respecting uh, women, you know, uh, training. Uh, the HR got the workplace violence training was quite important for uh, and then how we respect each other in our organization. So we did those training as well. So workplace violence, HR training was a lot involved. And but we had a lot of training in the process. Human resource department was more engaged in the software training. Even when we were hired, for example, each one of us hired on a, uh, uh, there, was, there was a skill thing that we had to go through. And then we were, that, that, um, there was an organization that did the testing and then they would recommend what kind of training this person needs to go through in improving his or her ability uh, on their software skills, you know. Oh, okay, so a bit of a gap analysis for each supervisor to figure out uh, where, where they could brush up on, um, on soft skills. That's interesting. Gallup did this survey for every individual of the company and based on the Gallup survey, then they would train the people. Uh, but human resources did a lot of this, that, that kind of a training. Nice. I was more involved in the, the, like you said, the technical and OSHA part of it. All right, so with that, uh, we'll close off this uh, part one of our discussion with uh, Mike Sajani, and we're going to move on to uh, part two of this podcast. And in part two, we're going to talk about active employee involvement and engagement. We'll talk as well about database decision-making and uh, root cause analysis, and also going beyond compliance and then I'm going to ask Mike to do a, a quick Q&A with a few questions that I've recorded um, as, uh, as we've been chatting here. So uh, join us soon on Safety Talks with Pat Robinson for part two of Mike Sajani and our conversation regarding achieving world-class safety by actively engaging employees using the five pillars of safety. If you like what you heard today, or if you've liked previous podcasts, or have interesting subject matter that our audience can learn from, we want to hear from you. Check our show notes at safopedia.com slash podcast. You can email me at pat.robinson at hsebestpractices.com, or contact me on Twitter at patrobinson2005.